Blog Talk Radio. Members. It, 
in much the same way, the human brain can only operate as fast as the slowest brain cells. Now, as we know, excessive intake of alcohol kills brain cells. But naturally, it attacks the slowest and weakest brain cells first. <laughs> in this way, regular consumption of beer eliminates the weaker brain cells, making the brain a faster and more efficient machine. And that norm is why you always feel smarter after a few beers. <laughs> I just think that was, okay. that, that was a philosophy of life there. Uh, this uh, is from the AFSCME workers, the American yeah. Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, from their magazine that they send out. Five things you need to know about the attacks on workers' freedom. Number one, our union faces an unprecedented effort to eliminate our rights. For more than 40 years, the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation tried to prevent hardworking American women and men from collectively bargaining for better wages and benefits. <coughs> By forming unions and paying dues, working people pool their resources as a way to counterbalance the vast corporate resources that don't always have our interests in mind. Right to Work understands this is the most effective way for workers to advocate for themselves, and their goal is to stop collective advocacy. Right to Work schemes, what we call Right to Work for Less schemes, are intended to destroy unions by attacking the ability of workers to fund union activities with their dues. In thousands of cases, including a dozen or so that reached the U.S. Supreme Court, the Right to Work Foundation, a, fund, a front group for corporate interests and right-wing extremists, aimed straight at the heart of American democracy by seeking to silence workers' voices on the job. Their latest attempt is Harris versus Quinn, a case that was argued before the U.S. Supreme Court in January and is like a weapon of mass destruction, armed at public sector unions. It represents the most far-reaching existential threat we've ever faced as a union, says President Lee Saunders. Harris versus Quinn doesn't just target home care providers, it targets all workers. At stake in Harris versus Quinn is the very ability of public sector unions to engage in collective bargaining activities. The Right to Work Foundation's argument is that government workers should not be able to come together and negotiate over their wages benefits, and other conditions of employment simply because they are in public service. It's already the law that fair share payers can avoid paying the portion of union dues that covered expenditures for ideological causes, but this would go even further. It's an attempt by the National Right to Work Committee to undermine the very foundations of public service trade unionism. President Saunders says, not only is the right to work following its usual program of attacking fair share fees, it also asks the Supreme Court to rule on the right of, it, of independent providers to bargain collectively with states. There is a radical change ahead. At the U.S. Supreme Court hearing in January, the right to work lawyer, William Messenger, claimed that deducting union dues from public employees' paychecks for the purpose of collective bargaining is a violation of that public workers' freedom of speech. His argument raised a few eyebrows among the judges, but not as many as it should have. 
It's a radical argument, just as Alina Kagan said in response. It would radically restructure the way workplaces across the country are run. Since the Taft-Hartley Act, Kagan continues, there has been a debate in every state across the country about whether to be a right-to-work state, and people have disagreed. Some states say yes, some say no. It raises considerable heat and passion. And tension, as we recently saw in Wisconsin. But you know, these are public policy choices that states make. Harris versus Quinn is, in fact, about the freedom of speech and freedom of association. It's about the freedom of millions of home care providers in our nation, many of whom already democratically chose to organize their union, to have a voice on the job, to speak out for our consumers and improve our ability to provide quality services and to collectively defend our right as public employees. There is also an implicit sexist agenda in Harris versus Quinn to prevent women's earnings for catching up to men. In fact, of the nearly 2 million home health care providers in our nation, more than 90% of them are women. Should the court side with the right-to-work lobby, we and other public sector unions could lose 700, several hundred thousand members overnight. But what's worse in that the home care workers, many of whom are women with who uh, must rely on government assistance uh, to make ends meet, who would lose their voices on the job and have a greater risk of further falling into poverty. Many of the attacks against public workers and their families come from the same source. Although they do their best to hide their donors, groups like the Right to Work Committee or the better known American Legislative, Legislative Exchange Council are funded by the super wealthy to further enrich themselves at the expense of the American middle class. Two of these major funders are billionaire Koch brothers, Charles and David, who are owners of the Koch Industries and on the list of America's top air polluters. The money they spend on buying politicians at all levels of government shows no sign of slowing down. In the 2012 elections, the Koch brothers spent $413 million more than 2.5 times the combined spending of the top 10 labor unions. And their efforts are far from unsuccessful. In Wisconsin, for example, where AFSCME members lost their collective bargaining rights, nearly half of the state legislators voted with the ALEC agenda 100% of the time in 2011 and 2012. And that's the ALE agenda is the American Legislative Exchange Council. In right-to-work states, you're more likely to earn less. Workers earn about $1,500 less per year. You're more likely to be uninsured by your employer. The rate of employer-sponsored health insurance is 2.6 percentage points lowest. You're more likely to be unemployed. Eight of the 12 states with the highest unemployment rates have right-to-work laws on the books, and you're more likely to be killed on the job. The rate of workplace deaths is 52.9% higher in right-to-work states. Wow. That's absolutely amazing, folks. And, you know, we just... And the Koch brothers can spend more money than 10 unions combined? Yeah. That's pretty damn sick. That's how much money they have, and they're gaining more. 
That's uh, pretty scary. Workers stand up from Evanston, Illinois, to Mount Everest for fairness and safety. This week is a big one for workers fighting for a voice and fair treatment on the job. Northwest football players are voting on union representation on Friday. And Sherpers, who work as guides for Mount Everest drill seekers, are on strike for safer conditions and fair pay. Good for them. I'm going to go to this. That was all there was on that. You can read more about the Sherpa strike in the New York Times, actually. That's pretty cool that they're striking. Well, they should be. You know, they damn well should be after what's happened to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they lost 15, 15 people. Now, for all these yo-yos who go up there at the, the, onto the... For mountain. all these thrill seekers. Yeah, yeah. The AFL-CIO stands with the Northwestern football players seeking a union voice. I think they should have a union voice. I mean, they're risking their lives out there, and they're not getting paid, yeah. and they have no health benefits. That's right. You know, I, I just think it's wrong the way they treat these people. Football players at Northwestern University will make history this Friday that has nothing to do with yards gained, tackles made, or touchdowns scored. They will be the first group of collegiate athletes who are the key to the $6 billion a year big-time college sports industry to vote on joining a union. Just getting to the vote was a major victory for the players, whose major concerns about fairness, working conditions, safety, and medical care, especially after their playing days are over, but their injuries are not, were not being heard or addressed by Northwestern. That's why the players came together on their own and decided the best way to win a voice was through collective action in a union. Like workers everywhere, they want a voice on the job. And don't let anyone tell you that football players are not working for the university and padding a spot on line through their job <coughs> on the football field. They want and deserve to say how they spend as many as 60 hours a week under the tight control of coaches and the university in honing their football skills while finding enough hours outside of football to keep up with their demanding academic responsibilities. I know how that tough that can be. My son played football for Cornell University, and balancing the bands of football in the classroom could be daunting. Like an ever-growing number of young people, Northwestern football players are finding out that collective action works and that unions can be a way to solve problems and improve their lives. On college campuses, they've seen university workers, from food service employees to graduate assistants to professors, come together on, in unions and win on-the-job and improvements and more equal fitting, footing with university administrators. But with a more focused awareness, Ameri- the American new- little class is no longer the world's riches, though I believe that. I thought we might go to that. This is, this is yeah. Monday, and have we done that after all? Well, let, let me just say that um, I feel sorry we all. For the jocks. I, I do. I think they're being exploited, and they think they do need a union. So let's go to this other article. I know a lot of people have, have read these about 
and are in support. Well, this is from the New York Times, uh, actually, which I usually never read because uh, they usually so <laughs> so 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 global. Uh, but the American middle class, long the most affluent in the world, has lost this distinction. They must have put this out there because they want you to feel like a piece of turd that you are. You know yes, what I mean? I'm sure. That they're making you feel like the elitist of the elite. <laughs> New York Times, okay, has come out and told you. You're you, no longer... You suck. You're, you suck, exactly. You <laughs> suck worse than everybody else in the world, you American middle class. The American middle class, long the most affluent in the world, has lost that distinction. While the wealthiest Americans are outpacing many of their global peers, a New York Times analysis shows that across the lower and middle income tiers, citizens of other advanced countries have received considerably larger raises over the last three decades. After middle after tax middle class incomes in Canada, substantially be, uh, substantially behind in 2000, now appear to be higher than in the United States, and the poor in the much of the Europe earn more than poor in Americans. Okay, the numbers based on surveys conducted over the past 35 years offer some of the most detailed publicly available comparisons for different income groups in different countries over time. They suggest that most American families are paying a steep price for high and rising income inequality. Although economic growth in the United States continues to be as strong as in many other countries, or stronger, a small percentage of American households is fully benefiting from it. Medium income in, the, in, Canada. in Canada pulled into a tie with median United States income in 2010. It has most likely surpassed it since then. Median incomes in Western European countries still trail those in the United States, but the gap is in several, including Britain, Netherlands, and Sweden, is much smaller than it was a decade ago. In European countries hit hardest by a recent financial crisis, such as Greece and Portugal, incomes have, of course, fallen sharply in recent years. But the income data were compiled by LIS, a group that maintains the Luxembourg Income Study Database. The numbers are, were analyzed by researchers at LIS and by the Upshot, a New York Times website, covering policy and politics and reviewed by outside academic economists. The struggles of the poor in the United States are even starker than those of the middle class. A family at the 20th percentile of the income distribution in this country makes significantly less m money than a similar family in Canada, Sweden, Norway, Finland, or the Netherlands. 35 years ago, the reverse was true. LIS counts after-tax cash income from salaries, interest, and stock dividends, among the other sources, as well as direct government benefits, such as tax credits. And it says the United States' one strong lead in middle-class incomes is shrinking. Mm -hmm. It shows how. It says the findings are striking because the most commonly cited economic statistics, such as per capita gross domestic product, continue to show the United States has maintained its lead as the world's richest large country. But those numbers are averages, which do not capture the distribution of income, with a big share of recent income gains in this country flowing to a relatively small slice of high-earning households. Most Americans are not keeping pace with their counterparts around the world. The idea that the median American has so much more income than the middle class in all of the parts of the world is not true these days. 
said Lawrence Katz, a Harvard economist who is not associated with LIS. In 1960, we were massively richer than anyone else. In 1980, we were richer. In the 1990s, we were still richer. That is no longer the case, Professor Katz added. Median per capita income was $18,700 in, $18, in the United States in 2010, which translates to about $75,000 for a family of four after taxes, up 20% since 1980 but virtually unchanged since 2000 after adjusting for inflation. The same measure by comparison rose about 20% in Britain between 2000 and 2010 and 14% in the Netherlands. Median income also rose 20% in Canada between 2000 and 2010, the equivalent of $18,700. The most recent year in the LS analysis is 2010. But other income surveys conducted by government agencies suggest that since 2010, pay in Canada has risen faster than pay in the U.S. and now is most likely higher. Pay in several European countries has also risen faster since 2010 than it has in the U.S. Three broad factors appear to be driving much of the weak income performance in the U.S. First, educational attainment in the U.S has risen far more slowly than in much of the industrialized world over the last three decades, making it harder for the American economy to maintain its share of highly skilled, well-paying jobs. Americans between the ages of 55 and 65 have, have literacy, numeracy, and technology skills that are above average relative to 55 to 65-year-olds in the rest of the industrialized world, according to a recent study by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, an international group. Younger Americans, though, are not keeping pace. Those between 16 and 24 rank near the bottom among rich countries, well behind their counterparts in Canada, Australia, Japan, and Scandinavia, and close to those in Italy and Spain. A second factor is that companies in the U.S. economy distribute a smaller share of their bounty to the middle class and poor than similar companies elsewhere. Top executives make substantially more money in the U.S. than in other wealthy countries. The minimum wage is lower, labor unions are weaker. And because the total bounty produced by the American economy has not been growing substantially faster here in recent decades than in Canada or in Western Europe, most American workers are left receiving meager wages, meager raises. Finally, governments in Canada and Western Europe take more aggressive steps to raise the take-home pay of low- and middle-income households by redistributing income. Janet Gornick, the director of LIS, noted that inequality in so-called market incomes, which does not count taxes or government benefits, is high but not off the charts in the U.S., yet the American rich pay lower taxes than the rich in many other places and the United States does not redistribute as much income to the poor as other countries do. As a result, inequality in disposable income is sharply higher in the U.S. than elsewhere. Whatever the causes, the stagnation of the income has left many Americans dissatisfied with the state of the country. Only about 30% of people believe the country is headed in the right direction, polls show. Things are pretty flat, said Kathy Washburn in 59. 
of Mount Vernon, Iowa, who earned 33000 at an Ace Hardware store, where she has worked for 23 years. You have mostly lower level and high and not a lot and a lot in the middle. People need to start in, bet in between to work their way up. Middle class families in other countries are obviously not without worries, some common around the world and some specific to their countries. In many parts of Europe, as in the United States, parents of young children wonder how they will pay for college, and many believe their parents enjoyed more rapidly rising living standards than they do. In Canada, people complain about the cost of modern life from college to monthly phones and internet bills. Unemployment is a concern almost everywhere. But both opinion surveys and interviews suggest that the public mood in Canada and Northern Europe is less sour than the United States today. The crisis had no effect on our lives, Jonah Forjohn, 37, a Swedish firefighter, said, referring to the global financial crisis that began in 2007. He lives with his wife, Malin, a nurse, in a seaside town a half-hour drive from Gothenburg, Sweden's second-largest city. They each have five weeks of vacation and comprehensive health benefits. They benefit from almost three years of paid leave between them, uh, and after... After their, their children. children, now three and six years old, were born. Today, the children attend a subsidized child care center that costs about 3% of the foreign's income. Oh, man. Even with a large welfare state in Sweden, per capita GDP, there has grown more quickly than in the United States over almost any extended period. A decade, 20 years, 30 years. Sharp increases in the number of college graduates in Sweden allowing for the growth of high school jobs has played an important role. Elsewhere in Europe, economic growth has, seen, has been slower in the past few years than in the United States, as the continent uh, has struggled to escape the financial crisis. But incomes of most families in Sweden and several other northern European countries have still outpaced those in the United States, which much of the fruits of recent economic growth have flowed into corporate profits or top income. Uh, this pattern suggests that future data gathered by LIS are likely to show similar trends to those through 2010. It does not appear to be any other publicly available data that allows for the comparison that the LIS data makes possible, but two other sources lead to broadly similar conclusions. A Gallup survey conducted between 2006 and 2012 showed the United States and Canada with nearly identical per capita median income, and Scandinavia with higher income. And tax records collected by Thomas Piketty and other economists suggest that the United States no longer has the highest average income among the bottom 90% of earners. Yeah, and you know what they don't state, though, in this, in this article, is that both all of those countries have socialized medicine and have paid for nothing. It comes out of their taxes or whatever. That's right. But they're still earning more money. Even though they're they getting all that support. All that support and subsidies for their kids and subsidies so they for have, child support, so they have, child, child care. So, let me finish. So, so they have lots of, of bendable money. Exactly. One large European country where income has stagnated over the past 15 years is Germany, according to LIS data. Policymakers in Germany have taken a series of steps to hold down the cost of exports, including restraining wage growth. Even in Germany, though, the poor have fared better than the U.S., where per capita income has declined between 2000 and 2010 at the 40th percentile, as well as the 30th, 20th, 10th, and 5th. 
Um, more broadly, the poor in the United States have trailed their counterparts in at least a few other countries since the early 1980s. The slow income grew since then. The American poor now clearly trail the poor in several other rich countries. At the 20th percentile, where someone is making less than four-fifths of the population, income in both the Netherlands and Canada was 15% higher than the income in the United States in 2010. By contrast, Americans at the 90th, 5th percentile of the distribution, with $58,600 in after-tax per capita income, not including capital gains, still make 20% more than their counterparts in Canada, a 26% more than those in Britain, and 50% more those than those in the Netherlands. For these well-off families, the United States is easily the world's most prosperous, prosperous major economy. Yeah, of course. For know, them. You know, so, you know. I mean, how much would they make if they make 58000 after taxes? I wonder how much they make before taxes. Mm -hmm. But you know, a couple of hundred thousand? Or no, no, well, no, no. They're only making fifty-eight after taxes. They're probably only probably making seventy-nine. Oh, okay. Or sixty. Or we, we, depends on how what kind of deductions they have and so on. You know. Oh. But you know, it's still. I mean, they're not. They're still. All these people are paying for tax for uh, paying for taxes. Yeah, they're paying for um, all this stuff. You know. Yeah. <laughs> they're paying for everything. You know, whereas these other countries are paying for nothing. Yeah. And they're keeping their money. That's right. They have a big spendable income. That's amazing. Uh, I don't know. It's a sad day. Oh, I like that. I, I like that cartoon. Go on back Hillary, on uh, Hillary. Why don't you read that? I, yeah, I thought I'd read this first, though. Um, in a hundred years, we have gone from teaching Latin and Greek in high school to teaching remedial English in college. <laughs> That's America, man. All right. Oh, yeah, here's something. Here's a picture of, uh, a gruesome picture of Hillary Clinton. It's funny, she fell and hit her head and couldn't remember shit. Now she wants to be president. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh. I thought that was funny. I thought it was. Of course, I, I read this once before, maybe last year sometime, but it says, lobbying, these are the five top groups that are lobbying against cannabis. Police unions, private prisons, liquor companies, big pharma, and prison guard unions. <laughs> yeah, all who benefit. Anybody who benefits from, you know, incarceration. incarceration yeah. I'm surprised they don't say judges, lawyers, and courts. Uh, because yeah, they benefit too. Yeah, I'm too, actually. Yeah, you're right. They just right don't want that. to be known for that, that's all. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that too, that was from, uh, I don't know, that was from. Listen to this, inequality in the 1% rule. In what should be considered standing logic on its end, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled this week that while public colleges have an interest in having a racially diverse student body, Nonetheless, the racial majority of a state can vote to remove the racial diversity as a goal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, inequality. Yeah. yeah. This is a radical and activist reinterpretation of the Constitution. Since by strict construction, the 14th Amendment had been added to explicitly limit white majority action 
to deny full legal protection to the newly freed slaves and their dependents. The purpose was to limit majority rule from becoming mob, mob rule, continuing a legacy of inequality. Let's see what more they have to say. Most disturbing, this ruling comes as our nation's need for success and having a diverse, skilled workforce is increasing. The majority of babies born this year are children of color. A part of the reason our nation's middle class is seeing other countries' incomes catch up to them is because the education advantage of Americans is, shrink Americans is shrinking. To keep pace, America must find ways to educate all its children. Earlier this month, high school seniors received letters accepting or rejecting them from dream schools. The selective institutions now receive thousands of applicants for each available spot. The University of Michigan, the school at the heart of the Supreme Court's case, received 40,000 applicants and accepted about 16,000. Last year, the difference between the average SAT section score of the 2014 freshman class and those who were rejected was 672 compared to 642. Clearly, many of those rejected differed little from those accepted. There are more qualified applicants than slots. So the challenge for schools like Michigan is in putting together a class among virtually equal applicants. Giving its history as the winningest problem, program in college football history, history, we can be assured that playing football will be, continue to be considered Rejecting too many football players would interrupt a pipeline of talent that would be hard to reestablish. So it is among all students. When numbers dwindle, the relevance of the school in that community declines. With a rising share of black and Latino students nationally, Michigan needs a lifeline to recruiting in those communities. But this ruling lets football talent remain a criteria for admission to Michigan while dismissing the national need for a deep bench of engineering talent. And that goes on. Yeah, so anyway, that's, that's what's happening out there, folks. Uh, so that in my air, uh, was on, uh, it was on our uh, interview with her after that, uh, uh, about that, uh, and she, she disagreed totally with, the, um, with, this, with, with her peers on that one because she said they, they missed the fundamental concept of what that was about, the affirmative action. Yeah. And she said that this is, and, and again, the same way they, they screwed up that whole thing with the uh, with the civil rights. Well, know, I thought that was horrible I mean, what they you know, did. And, and what, I mean, this, this I mean, they got a, they got a black guy on, on this committee. They got it on the, on the Supreme Court, and he's ruling with all the conservatives. It's asshole Thomas. I mean, we've got the worst Supreme Court we've ever had. I don't think there's ever been a worse Supreme Court. Well, just wait. When the when all of the balance changes and they're all blacks and Hispanics, whites will be discriminated against. Yeah, eventually. maybe yeah, maybe that's well, what they don't want. Know, because no, I don't think so. Because they'll all be bought out by uh, like Obama. They're all bought out by the corporations. You know? That's kind of. No, they're all they're all uh, they're all jerk offs. You know, they all they all uh, they're all they're all bought out. You know, uh, corporate whores. You know, Thomas and every one of them. Well, I mean, he's Thomas, a he's is, a hard. Is, yeah, he's a whore. I mean, his 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 uh, his, his wife is a is a t 
Tea Party whore. I mean, yeah. come on. Who the hell are we kidding here? You know, he'd sell his own race down the drain in a second. He already had. Oh, many I mean, times. So has so Obama. I mean, it's, it's, nobody's kidding anybody here on this. All right? So let's be real here. I mean, where's the justice? This is a good one. A human person blocking construction of a tar sands pipeline for 10 hours can receive up to two years in jail. But a corporation, a corporate person spilling one million gallons of tar sands and causing one billion dollars in damage gets zero jail time. Yeah. Hello. Where's the justice on that one, folks? There isn't any. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's just sick. You want to go to something else? There's a horrible little video here I got. TSA is searching two and six year old children. Yeah, they're patting them down, feeling them up. Disturbing new video footage shows TSA performing full body pat downs on two infants aged two and six years old, illustrating how the federal agency still targets children despite a partial rollback of the policy in 2011. What's happening in this video just seems wrong in every way. All right, yeah, here's a little six-year-old girl is being molested. I mean, it's just really absolutely sick. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Then why are they doing that? Because they can. Doesn't make any other sense. Maybe they're getting cheap thrills from it. I don't know. Uh, well, anyway, here's another thing that bothers me so much. Uh, when Mrs. Obama talks about healthy food choices without taking uh, talking about GMO labeling, uh, yeah. she fails to address what has become one of the most high-profile controversial food policy issues in our time. Take action. Tell Michelle Obama consumers want labels on genetically modified food. Well, Michelle Obama rallies for new food labels but ignores consumer demand for GMO labeling. <laughs> Tell Michelle Obama consumers what labels on genetically modified food. And that's from organicconsumers.org. What yeah. a hypocrite of all hypocrites, you know? Yeah, here's some, yeah, Elizabeth Warren. Oh, yeah. I like her. Our agenda is America's agenda. The American people know. As loud as it goes, Theo. Not loud enough, though. I love her. Right. Now, I've always fought and lost my share of battles in Washington. You should be I putting it up here. Nobody can hear that loud. This is why, why isn't this man in jail? Assume that you ran a business that was found guilty of bribing, forgery, perjury, defrauding homeowners, fleecing investors, swindling consumers, cheating credit card holders, violating U.S. trade laws, and bilking American soldiers. Can you even imagine the punishment you would get? That's Jim Hightower, but he's talking about Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. Isn't that something? Absolutely unbelievable what's going on here, folks. And <laughs> Our agenda is America's agenda. The American people know that the system is rigged against them, and they want us to level the playing field. That's our mandate. That's what we're here to do. That's right. Now, I've already fought and lost 
my share of battles in Washington. And I've been around long enough to know Washington is a tough place. Real reform isn't easy. But I also know this. We don't fight. We can't win. But if we fight, we will win. We're going to go off here for a little minute. Because uh, there's no way that you can hear that, that uh, and maybe we can get it on the loudest But uh, we have to march with you to fight side by side with you. Our agenda is America's agenda. Let me hear it. Our agenda is America's agenda. If you can hear any of that, that's Elizabeth Warren talking to you. We win. We win.
There's nobody in this country who got rich on their own. Nobody. You build a factory out there, good for you. But I want to be clear. You moved your goods to market on roads that the rest of us paid for. You hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You were safe in your factory because of police forces and fire forces that the rest of us paid for. You didn't have to worry that marauding bands would come and seize everything at your factory. Now look, you built a factory and turned it into something terrific or a great idea, God bless. Keep a hunk of it. But part of the underlying social contract is you take a hunk of that and pay forward for the next kid who comes along. Number two, people feel like the system is rigged against them, and here is the painful part. They're right. The system is rigged. Number three, here's a quote. Hardworking men and women are busting their tails in full-time jobs that shouldn't be left in poverty. Number four, look around. Oil companies guzzle down the billions in profits. Billionaires pay a lower tax rate than their secretaries. And Wall Street CEOs, the same ones that direct our economy and destroyed millions of jobs, still strut around Congress. No shame, demanding favors and acting like we should thank them. Does anyone here have a problem with that? Number five. It's critical that the American people and not just the financial institutions be represented at the negotiating table. Number six, Americans are fighters. We're tough, resourceful, and creative. And we have the chance to fight on a level playing field where everyone pays a fair share and everyone has a real shot. That no one, no one can stop us. Number seven. And that's how we built the economy of the future, an economy with more jobs and less debt. We root it in fairness. We grow it with opportunity, and we build it together. Number eight, I understand the frustration. I share that frustration with what's going on, that right now Washington is wired to work well for those on Wall Street who can hire lobbyists and lawyers, and it doesn't work very well for the rest of us. Number nine. You're caught with an ounce of cocaine, the chances are you're going to jail. Evidently, if you launder nearly a billion dollars for drug cartels and violate our international sanctions, your company pays a fine and you go home and sleep in your own bed at night. Number 10, corporations are not people. People have hearts, they have kids, they get jobs, they get sick, they cry, they dance, they live, they love, they die, and that matters. That matters because we don't run this country for corporations. We run it for people. Number 11, if there had been a financial product safety commission in place 10 years ago, the current financial crisis would have been averted. That's number 11. Number 12, nobody's safe. Health insurance, that didn't protect 1 million Americans who were financially ruined by illness our medical bills last year, that was in February 2005, she said that. Well, she's a brave, outspoken woman, and I agree with everything that she says. I think she's wonderful. Yeah, well, she is. I hope she runs for president. Remember, she was an Obama appointee, so... Yeah, but she didn't get the job in the in the uh, know, area that she system. developed. I don't know. Well, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe uh, she, she's got... Probably the most she's got a lot of guts. anybody else, but I mean it's like uh, I don't I don't just don't believe in any in any. It's hard to believe in anybody. Yeah, I know it is. I just I agree with what she says. Now do something about it. Especially you. You're you are you you have been the most cynical 
I believe in what she's political voice. Well, you know, you know, you know, listening to me. I said I believe in what she says. <laughs> now I wanted to do something. Yeah, come on, be more it. talk, more action. I don't want any more talk. I want rhetoric. action on these yeah. things. Enough crap. Enough rhetoric. Well, let's go on. I believe on she's to saying it. something. That's something where nobody says anything to that. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, let's see. I just saw something really exciting here that I should read, but no. Uh, let's see. Oh yeah. Well, anybody who's interested at all in the uh, in the world of GMOs, and I think we are uh, very much so. We've been knocking on them for what I don't know, 20 years. But anyway, Russia won't import GMOs. Prime Minister says. It's I'm proud of them. You know. Our country like that. Yeah, Russia may be the current target for American corporate media for its alleged role in provoking Ukraine to war, but the former Soviet stronghold has become a world leader in protecting its food sovereignty and kicking the multinational biopirates to the curb. New reports indicate that Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev has announced the country's rejection of all imports of genetically modified organisms. Upholding Russia's growing stance against the cultivation and sale of GMO within its borders. They're smart, these people. The announcement comes just months after Medvedev ordered the country's health ministry, agriculture's ministry, and other relevant agencies to investigate GMO safety and come up with proposals for better protecting the integrity of the country's food supply. According to RT.com, their consensus is that Russia has no need for GMOs and will instead remain committed to traditional agricultural practices that have proven track record of safety. If the Americans like to eat GMO products, let them eat them, stated Medvedev before our Congress of deputies from various rural settlements at a recent uh, meeting. We don't need to do that. We have enough space and opportunities to produce organic food. Earlier in the year, the Russian parliament petitioned the government to impose a temporary ban on GMOs pending the procurement of data showing their safety for humans and the environment. Well, such data doesn't exist, of course, as GMO purveyors like Monsanto have never been required in places like the U.S. or Canada to conduct any long-term safety studies or transgenic crop prior to their commercial approval. And if they did, the results would not be favorable. And consequently, Russia has decided to take the precautionary uh, approach in the interest of its people rather than corporations with the hope of eventually barring all GMOs from being bred, planted, or otherwise used within the country. And this decision is backed by virtually every major government agency in Russia, illustrating the great differences between the leadership of this often vilified country and the increasing fascist dictatorship that currently rules the U.S. Whoa! Strong words. And it's true. The import of GMOs and GMO-based products into the Russian Federation may be banned if such products fail to pass the required examinations. Read a draft bill recently put forth by the Russian Ministry of Education and Science, which was tasked with tightening control over GMOs in Russia. And it says Putin opposes GMO, says Russian citizens need to be protected. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin is also opposed to GMO, uh, because having told the media that part of his job is to protect the Russian people against industrial food offerings that might harm them. Likewise, Russian Minister of Agriculture Nikolai uh, Fedorov uh, says that he wants to see GMOs completely banned from all Russian territories as well, having referred to them in the media as poison. And how ironic that a sustainable food movement should take root in Russia at the behest of the people instead of the so-called democratic West, where the will of the people is overturned by money, wrote one of RT.com's commentators about Medvedev's announcement. I want my food imported from Russia. <laughs> and similar sentiments are reflected in other comments, including one from a Russian woman telling of her experiences eating American food compared to food from her homeland. And besides the bread tasting like rubber, in her experience, American food in general simply doesn't live up to the high-quality standards that are still the norm throughout Russia, standards that promote health and longevity rather than disease and death. There are a lot of choices of milk products, uh, proper bread, etc. in Russia, she writes, and the government of USA doesn't want Americans to be healthy, giving big monopoly rights to feed people with all of this rubbish for huge profits. And she's pretty right on that. I mean, you know, that's what's going on. They see it. They're not stupid. You know, uh, well, only of, Americans are stupid. Lots huh. of places in South America won't allow GMOs, and they won't, you know, say that. No, no, only Americans are stupid enough to, to fall for this stuff. Yep. You know, it's just, oh, my God, you know. Come on. Give us a break. Uh, well, that bought off Congress. Yeah, here's one that might be interesting to you. Over 250 million Americans are addicted to food drugs and suffering the consequences. Oh, I believe that. Want to read for that? What food drugs? What on earth are you talking about? Do you mean they, as in big food, are putting prescription drugs inside food and drinks? Do you mean that scientists are working in labs right now figuring out how to make humans addicted to certain food additives and agents? Is that what you mean? But food drugs? Health enthusiasts everywhere want to know. The health ranger is studying this phenomenon in the natural news forensic food lab using microscopy and other high-tech scientific equipment for measuring chemical levels in food, including toxic heavy metals like lead, cadmium, and aluminum. Do you ever wonder how many chemicals are in food? Try about 70,000 different ones that are allowed by the FDA. How can you even start to filter them out if you, of your daily intake? That's easy. You just have to prioritize. Start with identifying and eliminating toxic heavy metals and pesticides, the two largest contributors to disease and disorder in the USA. Junk science addicts explore. What is junk science? Who invests? Who is responsible? Why does the biotech industry and the late great healthcare scam of Obama want you addicted to junk food? What is the big picture and what is the grand connection here? Do the bioengineers, aspartame central nervous system disruptor and MSG to make you hungrier and make you gain weight? Yes, they do. And do they bioengineer bug killer and weed killer to ruin your good gut bacteria in your flora? Yes. How can you become addicted to McDonald's and Taco Bell for life? How are GMO potato chips and HFCs, high fructose corn syrup, 
subsidized by the government, and why would they subsidize fiction? These questions are more and more are all answered, and you have to do is learn is to keep your mind open about your own health. How about that? They subsidize those yeah. companies. <laughs> Over 250 million Americans are addicted right now to food drugs and suffering health consequences, uh, heading directly toward cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, arthritis. Let's face it, big foods invest mainly in one area, and that is big pharma. Conventional food, 90% of all food, is processed and cooked dead and then labeled as fortified to fool the public that it contains any nutritional value at all when it doesn't. Plus, since about 1990, the holiness of natural food has been devastated by genetic modification to contain weed killer and bug killer. So on top of being dead food, for two decades, it has been contaminated with poison on the inside. The seeds and plants now contain chemicals that kill pests, and guess what? They kill human beings who are consuming them. Dying pests, ka-ching, big money for the pink ribbon washing candidates or industrial, industrial complex. Don't be a fool. Stop getting fooled. It's okay to admit you're wrong. Go on. Open the doors of your pantry and look. Open the refrigerator and freezer. Open your medicine cabinet. It's time to throw away everything that Big Food and Big Farmer have sold you so, through false advertising and marketing schemes. 250 million people are eating GMOs daily. Ask any health, a natural health enthusiast this question, and they will estimate a similar statistic here. Much more than half, and closer to 75 or 80 percent of the masses, do not eat organic food regularly. If ever, to define this fact, you could simply look at the GNP of organic versus conventional GMO foods and drinks or the gross national sales. You would also have to consider personal products, cosmetics, lotions, soaps, etc. in the equation because the skin is the, tar is the largest organ. And if you are using chemical care products on your skin, then you are also consuming cancer as GMOs, heavy metal toxins, parabens, Pathalates, petroleum, or petroleum, and BPA, and more. To fully understand how GMOs breed cancer, uh, one can uh, simply ask the question to search engines and look at uh, for credible sourcing. Well, Jeffrey Smith is an authority on explaining how GM seeds are derived, composed, concocted, and grown in the crop fields among, across America. Organizations which oppose Monsanto with all their heart and might are screaming about the dangers of modifying seeds with insect DNA and bacterial organisms that otherwise would have never crossbred with vegetables and fruits. You can take this in the mass boycott of GMI food and, and, uh, and beverage. Take part in this. Um, make sure you buy food that is non-GMO project, project verified. Project. Uh, yes. Well, the project uh, certifies uh, products that have less than 0.9% GMO contamination. That's what I'm talking about. Hey, it's not a perfect science, but it's darn near close. Check labels and dodge uh, factory for corn, soy, sugar, and vegetable oils, as these are made from GM crops and represent the four most common GM ingredients you'll encounter in your food. 
Read that again. What are the corn, soy, and sugar, and vegetable oils? Okay, uh, uh, sugar from GM sugar beets. Um, how do you get off toxic prescription drugs and toxic food drugs and get healthy? Well, check out Dr. John Bergman speaking on the toxicity of every pharmaceutical drug you can be can you can be sold on via TV and allopathic health complexes, aka the Western witch doctors. And you can go, you can check that out. Uh, but anyway. Uh, that's it, folks. It's 9 o'clock. I want to thank everybody who joined us. So try, and, uh, try not to eat GMOs. Try not to eat GMOs. And if you want to get that article or any other article that's really good to listen to, to read, go to naturalnews.com. All right? So have a wonderful, wonderful evening, folks, and have a great week. Uh, so Enjoy I, your weekend. Yeah. And uh, Remember, unions are important. Yeah. That keeps the wages of everybody up, so support your unions. Absolutely. Good night, everyone.